You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. Lord, you are holy. We look forward to the day we stand with you. We get to worship you and praise you as you are, Lord. We get to stand face to face with the one who died and set us free. The one who gave us life beyond the grave. Lord, that all the brokenness and all the sicknesses and all the illnesses and and all the troubles of this world are going to pass away in the new heavens and the new earth when we are with you. We look forward to that day, Lord. We look forward to that day. We praise you and we honor you because of your sacrifice. Because you saw fit to save a wretch like me. That you saw fit to take my blind eyes and open them so I can see. Lord, thank you for what you've done. But more than that, Lord, thank you for who you are. And as we open your word this morning in the book of John, chapter 9, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to your scripture. That you would illuminate it so that we can see the the beauty and the treasure in your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, guys. So if you've not been with us before, this is your first time with us in a while, um, we are going through the book of John. We're going verse by verse through the book of John. We started back, way back in January, the beginning of January. We'll probably wrap up, wrap up this journey um, at the end of November before Christmas time. So um, it's been a joy to, to study the, the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John really shows us who Jesus is, the divinity of Jesus, the the person and the work of Jesus, that he is God, that he has God put on flesh to come and dwell with his creation. And one of the beautiful things as you read the scriptures is that long before Jesus' birth, God gave his people a heads up that Jesus would come, that the Messiah would come, that a Savior would come to save them. In fact, the first mention of the Savior happens in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right after humanity messes up, right after Adam and Eve disobey and rebel against God. God promises that He is going to restore them. He promises that He is going to restore them. And one of the ways, that another way that God spoke to people about this coming Messiah, about this Savior to come, was through His prophets. And He distinctly told people that Things were going to change when this man showed up, when this God-man showed up, when this Savior came on the scene, things were going to change. That he was going to restore brokenness. That he was going to bring wholeness. That he was going to bring back sight to the blind. That he was going to take all that was broken in the world and fix it. And in John chapter 9, we read about Jesus Like I said, the Gospel of John is all about Jesus and who he is. And and John chapter 9 is a beautiful passage about Jesus opening the eyes of the blind man. A man born blind receives sight from Jesus. And as I was studying this passage this week, one of the interesting things that popped out to me was that how many times Jesus heals blind people in the Gospels. In fact, as a category of healings, Jesus heals more blind people than he does anybody else. I find that interesting, that Jesus opens the eyes of the blind. In fact, 
depending on how you count them, there's somewhere between six and eight different instances in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of Jesus healing blind people. And this is distinctly because the healing of the blind is a miracle reserved strictly for the Messiah. It's a miracle reserved strictly for the Savior that was to come. In Isaiah chapter 29, that one of the prophets of God, verses 18 and 19, he says this, On that day the deaf will hear the words of a document, and out of deep darkness the eyes of the blind will see. The humble will have joy after joy in the Lord, and the poor people will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Just a couple of chapters later in Isaiah chapter 35, it says this, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy, for water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. When the Messiah comes, when the Savior comes, things of this world are going to be different. And when Jesus entered into history as the God-man, things changed. Things changed. And all things in the future will be restored. And so when, when John the Baptist is in prison and he's curious about who Jesus or he's curious about if Jesus is who he says he is, he sends some people to talk to Jesus and he asks Jesus, Who are you? And Jesus replies to him in Luke chapter seven, verse twenty two, he says this Go report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind have received sight, the lame walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. And this is a direct allusion to the promises in Isaiah that I just read, that Jesus has come to restore. And we must not forget that the physical healing of sight is merely a picture of the greater need that we have. Right? We need to have not our physical eyes open, but our spiritual eyes open. We need to be brought from darkness into light. We need our eyes open because we were all born in darkness. And that is what Jesus shows us in our text this morning. That the healing of the blind man shows a need for a better sight. That we need to see Jesus for who he is and for what he has done. And one day, if we truly believe, we will see him as he truly is. When we are fully transformed, when we are fully restored, when we are fully made whole. So John chapter one or nine verse one says this: As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Jesus answered, This came about so that God's works might be displayed. We must do the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground. He made some mud from saliva, from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told them, told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. This man encountered a radical transformation. See, John chapter 9 is a continuation of what we have been talking about for the past several weeks, the Festival of Tabernacles. There's this cycle in the book of John about the Festival of Tabernacles. This festival starts back in chapter 7 and comes to a close here in chapter 9. And that's significant because during this time, remember, there's a lot of celebration. There's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of joy. There's a lot of anticipation of the Messiah. 
Jesus has already declared earlier that he is greater than the water ritual that they would do during the daily ceremonies of the festival when he stood up and he said, come and take a drink of me if you want living water. And when you drink of me, springs of living water will flow from you. Right? He also declared that he is the light of the world back in John chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. The, that is a, to combat the daily ceremonies for the festival of tabernacles when they lit those candelabras and the whole town of Jerusalem, the whole city of Jerusalem was lit up. In fact, it's on full display right now. Jesus being the light of the world is on full display right now when he opens the eyes of the blind. The man who was living in darkness can now see. The man living in darkness has now seen the light because Jesus has opened his eyes. But before we get to that miracle, Jesus' disciples ask a question of Jesus in regards to this blind man. They say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This is a common thought in the Jewish understanding of life. If you sin, there are consequences. If you've read the book of Job, you see this, right? You know exactly what is happening the friends of Job thought that Job had sinned and that's why these bad things had happened to him. Right? That all these bad things, the, the losing of his house, the losing of his children, the losing of his farmland was because he sinned, that, or so they thought. But that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is something greater. In fact, not only is this a, a reality for these people here, the, this thought is a reality for these people here, but it's in our culture as well. Right? From our point of view, we actually steal this idea from the Hindu teaching of karma, right? The Hindu teaching of karma, it means you get what's coming to you. That what goes around comes around. The worse you are, the worse your punishment's going to be. Now, the reason why this question is asked is because there's a human part of us that we are trying to answer. We are trying to answer why bad things happen. Uh, the study of this is called theodicy, and it's a question of, Evil. Why does evil exist? Why do bad things happen? Why do these things happen? For, for people who believe in God or even just some spiritual realm, they want to blame those afflicted for their own problems. It's your fault that this is happening. And to be sure, some bad things happen to people because of their own sin. There are consequences for sin. But that's not always the case. It's not always the case that something happens to you because of your sin. In fact, there are five reasons I'm going to give you that why bad things or perceived bad things happen. Okay, One reason that bad things happen is because of your sin. You make bad choices, you get bad consequences. Right? One is a, another reason is because of someone else's sin. Someone has sinned against you. They've caused something to happen in your life that's broken. Right? Another reason is the brokenness of the world, that we live in a sin, sinful and fallen world. Another one is Satan and his minions. His army causes bad things to happen. And then the last thing is, that God did it. That God did it, and He is working it out for some greater good. Now, here's the thing. We don't always have to know the reason why something happens. But the human question is, why does it happen? That's always where we go. Why is this thing happening? We don't have to know the reason. The why doesn't always matter. Sometimes there's something far more incredible happening that we can't even comprehend. In fact, here we see Jesus quickly corrects his disciples. No one is at fault for this man's blindness. It wasn't a consequence of sin. Jesus tells them that actually this man is blind so that God's works might be displayed in him. 
The man is blind so that God can be glorified. The man is blind so that Jesus could put on display that he is the sent one from God. So the reality is, is we don't have to know why these bad things happen. In fact, most of the time, asking why is the wrong question to ask altogether, especially as followers of Jesus. A better question is, what can I learn from this? Or what is God trying to teach me in this situation? How can God's glory shine through in the suffering? This man's life is about to be radically transformed. He's going to be radically transformed, and God's glory is going to be put on full display. This man, it tells us, was blind from birth, meaning that his only means of living depended on the the generosity of others. He was living a hopeless existence. He was ashamed to the community. He set out day after day begging for just some coins. He had no prospects of marriage. He had no social life. The people would not even associate with him because they thought that his problem was a result of sin. And they didn't want to have compassion on someone who is sinful. They would have enough compassion to drop a coin, but not enough to know him, not enough to care for him. And day after day, he would sit here begging for generosity. And this day, he was going to get something much better than just a few coins. This day, he was going to experience God's grace. And so Jesus is having this conversation about him. I can imagine he's sitting here, and the disciples are like, Hey, guy, hey, Jesus, what about this guy? Who sinned? He's like, you talking about me, right? He doesn't even know what's going on. He has no idea what's happening. And all of a sudden, he just hears somebody spit in the mud and start making some mud. And then he's blind, so he has no idea what's going on. And what does Jesus do? He takes the mud and he just wipes it on this guy's eyes. How disorienting would that be for somebody just to start wiping stuff, stuff on your eyes and you can't see? It doesn't say that Jesus told him what he was going to do. So for all we know, this guy's just minding his own business and someone's wiping stuff on his face. Wet, dirty substance on his face. It had to be a little disorienting. And then right after this mud was applied to his face, he's told to navigate the city, to go walking around the city and go to the pool of Siloam and wash his eyes. One of the questions that pops up is why Jesus doesn't simply speak to the man and open his eyes. Why doesn't Jesus just say, open your eyes? I mean, we saw his power earlier when he just told the lame man to stand up and walk, right? Why doesn't Jesus just say, open your eyes? Well, I believe that there is something going on here. Remember, Jesus just defended himself in front of the Pharisees when they asked who he was, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. He's claiming to be divine. And right here, when he takes that mud and he wipes it on the man's eyes, it is a picture of what happens in Genesis chapter 2, when God fashions Adam out of the mud. When God takes Adam and he molds him out of the dirt, Jesus is restoring this man with the same thing that he was created with to begin with. Jesus is restoring him. And this signifies that Jesus is in fact God. That Jesus is in fact the I am he talked about earlier. And he is using that same power and that same authority that God does in the creation story to relate him to being of the same authority. Jesus' instruction for the man is to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. What's intriguing is that the reason for this is threefold. The reason why he says go and wash in the pool of Siloam is threefold. Remember the water ceremony that we talked about with 
the festival of tabernacles, where, where they would draw the water and they would take it up to the altar and they would pour it on the altar. Well, this pool, the pool of Siloam, is where they would take that water. Right? And then John tells us that Siloam means sent. And over and over again, Jesus claims to be the one sent by God. Hence, he's trying to point to himself as this amazing sign. And then Isaiah chapter 8, verse 6 tells us that God's people are going to reject the waters of Siloam. So Jesus is the sent one from God who is greater than the festivals and the traditions, and he is going to be rejected by the people he came to save. And this is all pictured in him sending this guy to wash in the pool of Siloam. In this recounting of the healing of the blind man, Jesus is once again asserting that he is the light of the world. This is a callback to, like I said earlier, John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He is the light that pierces the darkness. He is That reality is on full display here as Jesus heals this man and brings him out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Jesus restores and radically transforms this man from being unable to see to being able to see and experience the King of glory. But his radical transformation is confusing to those around him. They aren't really sure what to do with him. Jesus is keeping everybody on their toes as he does signs that point to the Father. This sign of healing causes confusion. The first people that are confused about this sign are the neighbors of the blind man. So in verse 8 you read this. His neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, Isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said, he's the one. Others were saying, no, but he looks like him. And he kept saying, I am the one. So they asked him, then how were your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and told me, go to Siloam and wash. So when I went and washed, I received sight. Where is he? They asked. I don't know, he said. He's got some confused neighbors here. No doubt this man was a staple in the neighborhood. They had seen him day after day begging for money, begging for assistance, begging for a way to just have some food for one day. So when they saw this man walking about, probably on cloud nine, right? Probably strutting a little bit now that he could see and he could avoid potholes and he could avoid the dung on the road and he could walk around without worrying about bumping into somebody. He's probably pretty excited. They that he saw the, they saw him and they were dumbfounded. They couldn't believe their eyes. They were confused. Is this the same guy that we've seen hundreds of times? It couldn't be him. He's blind. Well, no, I think it's him. All the while he's saying, it's me, guys. It's me. I am he. I am the one. So finally, after much deliberation, they came to the conclusion that he was the one who had been blind and now he can see. And they asked him how it happened. And the only thing he knew was that a man called Jesus spread some mud on his eyes and told him to go wash it in the pool of Siloam. And when he did, he could see. Then like most people, right, these neighbors asked a dumb question. It's a dumb question. Where is he? He didn't see him. He had no idea where he was. He didn't even know what Jesus looked like. He says, I don't know. Sometimes that's a good answer. I don't know. I don't know. The man had no idea where he was. He was sitting down begging, had some mud wiped on his eyes, and went and washed it off. And then after that, he could see, where's Jesus? I don't know. What do you guys expect of me? Right? That's kind of what he's asking. I don't know where he is. 
The only interaction that he had with Jesus was when he wiped the mud and told him to go wash. So the only response he has is, I don't know. But I don't know isn't a good enough answer for these neighbors. They want to know exactly what's going on. So what they do is they take this man to the religious leaders. Now I want you to know that as they're taking him to the religious leaders, they're not trying to get him in trouble. They're just as confused as everybody else. Rather, they want this man to, they want this miracle to be defined by the religious leaders. So they want to ask him. So in verse 13, it says, they brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was the Sabbath. Then the Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes. He told them, I washed and I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was division among them. Again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, he said. So we're going to go through a series of three interrogations, and this is the first interrogation. The first interrogation, John provides us with a little more information about the blind man's healing. What does he tell us? That this healing took place on the Sabbath, which as we know from the previous chapters in John is a big no-no for the religious leaders. You don't do stuff on the Sabbath. They hate it when the Sabbath is broken. There's no way that they can believe that Jesus is from God because he breaks the Sabbath. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. According to their man-made laws and their man-made traditions, Jesus violated at least two, if not three, rules when he healed this man on the Sabbath. The first rule he broke was that healing somebody. You could not heal somebody on the Sabbath unless their life was in danger, and obviously this man's life was not in danger. Jesus also violated the work mandate because kneading and mixing was classified as work. So what did he do? He kneaded and he mixed that mud together. Therefore, he worked on the Sabbath. Some rabbis also taught that anointing the eyes in any way on the Sabbath was a violation. And now Jesus is guilty of all three of these things, right? In their minds and in their hearts and in their eyes, Jesus is guilty of all three of these things. However, we also see that people are confused by Jesus' actions. There's division among the religious leaders. Some of them are convinced that he's not from God, that he is an absolute sinner because he violates their laws. Others of them are asking a very real question. If he is a sinner, how can he do these things? If he is a sinner, how could he do these things? How is Jesus able to do these things and not be sent by God? And this is a really good question. Because we need to take, and we need to take some time to think through it for just a minute because it can cause some confusion. Does this mean that only God can do supernatural things? That's the question. Does this mean that only God can do supernatural things? No, it doesn't. A supernatural sign is not necessarily a sign of God's power in someone's life. This may be confusing, so let me add some clarity for you. The devil and his army, his minions, have some power in this world. They have what we would call supernatural power because they are supernatural beings. We have to be very careful in recognizing the difference between something that is simply supernatural and something that is divine from God. Right? Something that is supernatural and something that is from God. Something supernatural is outside of nature. Something divine is from God. Sometimes we can witness something supernatural and attribute it to the divine. 
For instance, a trend that's going on right now for people around my age and younger is that we, they, they start um, manifesting things into, they think that they're manifesting things into existence, right? Whether they're meditating or chanting or believing hard enough, whatever you want can become your own reality. This is really popular, like I said, with people of my generation and younger. In many of our churches, it's crept into them, to them and made us mark too. So for these people, they, they say they love Jesus. They try to manifest or speak something into existence. And then they, want, they get what they wanted. So let's say they're, they say they believe in Jesus and they're trying to chant or manifest something into existence and they get what they wanted. And now what do they do? They attribute that to Jesus. That God blessed them with this thing. This, treat, treat, this kind of teaching is really what the prosperity gospel is built upon. This is what the prosperity gospel is built upon. If you have enough faith, then God will give you this. Right? It's a false gospel. So now they are deceived and they attribute something that is simply supernatural or even demonic to something that is of God or divine. And the real danger lies in running back to this practice and continuing to try to manifest something into existence relying on chance or thoughts or positive energy or, or the universe or whatever it is to give you something. Getting distracted from what our mission is to love God and to love people and getting what you want. Because our life is not about our own desires, but it's about God's holiness. You may be asking, how do I know Satan and his minions have power? How can they do supernatural things? Well, all you have to do is go back to the book of Exodus. Right? And in the book of Exodus, God tells Moses a couple times to go and present these plagues to the, the Pharaoh in hopes that he would change his mind. And guess what happens? Some of those plagues, the, the wizards of the Egypt are able to replicate because of supernatural influence. But they are not of God, they are simply just supernatural. Then there are some things that they can't replicate because that's pointing to the fact that God has ultimate power and ultimate authority. So Satan and his army are not are not as powerful as God, but they are supernatural. They can do supernatural things. They can do things that we can't do. And a big deception is paying off right now, tricking people into believing that Satan's work is God's work, that you get what you want when you ask God, that you can go up to God and be a little slot machine and get whatever you want from him. If a wondrous sign or a supernatural experience is pointed to anyone or anything other than God, other than his goodness and his glory, we need to mark it for what it is. Wicked. It's wicked. It's evil. It's of the devil. Now we know that when Jesus was doing, what he was doing was not wicked. It was not demonic. And how do we know this? Because he was from God. He was God. He was pointing all the glory and honor and praise to God. And he did something that the demons couldn't do, which was heal somebody blindness. And the man healed is starting to pick up on something that the religious leaders aren't quite ready for. So they ask him who he thinks Jesus is. And what does he respond? How does he respond? He's a prophet. This is a recall back to John chapter 4 with Jesus talking to the woman at the well. At first she just sees him as a prophet, right? Meaning that he comes from God and he has the authority to speak on God's behalf. But the religious leaders aren't quite convinced. They don't believe this man was blind. So what do they do? They do what any good investigators do. They go talk to his parents. 
Let me go talk to your mommy, right? Let me go see your daddy. So verse 18, the Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received sight until they summoned the parents of the one who had received his sight. They asked him, is this your son? The one you say was born blind. How does he then, how then does he now see? We know our son, we know this is our son, and he was born blind, his parents answered. But we don't know how he sees, and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews, since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him, as a, that's Jesus, as a Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is why the parents said he is of age. So the second interrogation of the religious leaders goes to the parents. They See, they are blind to the truth. They are hiding in darkness. They are trying to negate this miracle that they see before them. They're trying to push away the sign. So they have to get some secondary verification that this man was blind. And so they call the, son, the guy's parents in. And they ask, was this the guy? He was, he was truly blind at birth? Yes, he was blind at birth. He was born blind. And now they know that he sees, and we don't know how it happened. They were washing their hands. See, the parents were washing their hands of any involvement with Jesus and the son. Why? Because they didn't want to face the consequences of their actions, the consequences of talking about Jesus being the one who healed them. They don't want to be disfellowshipped from the synagogue. They don't want to be outcast. They don't want to be shunned. They don't want to be cast out of the synagogue. They see the miracle standing in front of them, their own flesh and blood that had been radically transformed, and yet they don't want anything to do with that. They don't want any negative consequences from recognizing what God has done. So they say, He's, a, he's of age. Talk to him. Talk to him. He's, he's, he's of age. Any questions or inquiries can be forwarded to our son. Email him. Talk to him. Right. So the religious leaders are going back to the drawing board. And they call the man back in for another round of interrogation. Verse 24. So a second time they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Talking about Jesus. He answered, whether he is a sinner or whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you. He said, you don't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? They ridiculed him. You're that man's disciple, but we're Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. This is an amazing thing, the man told them. You don't know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he will listen to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a, of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he would not be able to do anything. You were born entirely in sin, they replied. And are you trying to teach us? Then they threw him out. Interrogation number three, the religious leaders demand that this man give glory to God. And this statement, give glory to God, is not a praise statement, but it's the equivalent of a Jewish oath, which the authorities employed to call a man to give honest witness and confess any sinfulness in his testimony. This happens a few times in the Old Testament, but one such time is found in 
Joshua chapter 7, verse 19, when after they had raided Canaan, Achan, one of the generals of the army, had stolen some stuff from the, the place he wasn't supposed to. And he had been discovered and he disobeyed God. And Joshua commands Achan to give glory to God. Basically, he's saying, confess your sins. Confess your sins. These religious leaders are convinced that Jesus is a sinner. They are convinced that Jesus is not who he said he is and that he is not glorifying God, that he is wrong. And they want this once blind man to see Jesus as they see Jesus, not as he truly is. But this man isn't convinced by their games. He doesn't know if Jesus is a sinner or not, but he does know this. It's beautiful. I was blind, but now I can see. My life has been transformed by an interaction with this man, Jesus. The religious leaders can't believe their heirs. And so that what they do, they continue to press this man for information. They continue to ask him the same question over and over and over again. They continue to overload him. And he reaches his breaking point in verse 27. Right? He says, I already told you. And you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become this man's disciples too, do you? But they don't want to become Jesus' disciples. Why? Because they are Moses' disciples. They still see the disconnect between, they still see a disconnect between Moses and Jesus. Rather than seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of what Moses had promised. So this man who has been sitting on the side of the road begging for coins and stuff sends them on a theological tizzy when he says this throughout history. For all the time that we have existed, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. Basically him saying, here I am, which you have never seen or taught, I'm standing in front of you, as a message of the Messiah to come, as a restoration of what God has promised. You are looking at the miracle, and you're too blind to see. He confronts them with this truth that this radical identifier of the Messiah has come to pass. And he confronts them, but they dismiss him. And why do they dismiss him? Because he's not trained in the law. He doesn't understand how to study. He doesn't know how to read. He isn't full of years of theological training. So the religious leaders take his challenge and they throw it out. They say, your argument and your challenge hold no water here. You're just a blind beggar. You have no authority. And meanwhile, he's just standing there going, guys, I was blind and now I see. Something has radically changed. Something has been different. And they, then they dismiss him even further by saying, you were born entirely in sin. Everything that you have to say, not worth listening to because you were born in sin. You can't teach us anything. You can't possibly know more than I do. We are elite studiers of the word of God and you are wrong. I'm blind. I was blind. Now I see. How can I be wrong? Things have transformed. Things have been different. Well, they're tired of listening to him. So what do they do? In the face of that truth, in the face of that miracle, in the face of God's power standing in front of them, they cast him out of the synagogue, dismissing him, saying, we don't want anything to do with you. And one of the things that this, this casting out is meant to do is to show us a contrast between this man's conviction and his family's denial. 
right? That his families were afraid to be cast out of the synagogue, and this guy is standing boldly and firmly saying, I will stand for the truth. I will stand on the Word of God. I will stand on what Jesus has done in my life regardless of the consequences. When this, parents, this man's parents feared being cast out of the synagogue, he welcomed it because he wasn't going to compromise the truth. And guess this, he was an outcast when he was blind, and he's an outcast now. He was getting shunned when he was blind, and he's still getting shunned. He is, his position in society hasn't changed. But he was blind, and now he sees. He's not hopeless anymore. When he was on that mat blind, he was hopeless when he had been radically transformed by Jesus, even though his circumstances hadn't changed other than the fact that he could see he stood on the truth. He's no longer hopeless. He had gained something greater than everything that he had lost. He can now see. And he's about to meet the one who opened his eyes. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out. And when he found him, he asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? that I may believe in him, he asked. Jesus answered, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshiped him. Here we see a true belief. For the majority of the story, most of this story, Jesus has been absent. This is all about this man's testimony and this man's witness. Here, Jesus shows back up after this man has been cast out of the synagogue, after he had lost everything that he wanted to gain. It's gone, but he's still standing on the truth. And notice this, the man didn't go look for Jesus. The man didn't go looking for Jesus. Jesus went looking for the man. And when he found him, he looks at him. And this is the first time this man had seen Jesus. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't know what Jesus looks like, but Jesus knew him. Jesus saw him in his hopelessness. He knew him before his transformation, and now he is going to reunite with him in that transformation. And as Jesus approaches him, he asks him, does he believe in the Son of Man? Does he trust in the Son of Man? Not does he believe and accept the signs of the Son of Man, but does he believe in the person behind the signs, the reality behind the signs, the Son of Man who brings hope, who brings forgiveness, who brings transformation to all who believe and trust him. And the man wants to know, who is this guy? Who is this son of man? I want to trust him. Jesus says, you have seen him. His eyes had been opened to the reality of who Jesus is. And now his life is radically different. He has been transformed by an encounter with Jesus. And what is his response? What is his response when Jesus says, you have seen him? He falls down and worships Jesus. Literally, this word worship means to, to lie prostrate before. Grateful for the new life that Jesus has given him. He's excited to worship the King of all kings, the Messiah, the one who came to restore sight to the blind. I want us to notice this man's journey that he went on. He went from not knowing Jesus to only knowing Jesus' name, to proclaiming him as a prophet, to standing up for Jesus in front of the religious authorities and claiming that God was working through him to now worshiping him. That's the journey that this man went on. And sometimes coming to faith is a process. You hear about Jesus, right? You don't know much about him. 
And then eventually you get to the point where you know him. That's what this man experienced. But when he finally saw Jesus and he talked to Jesus, he believed. He trusted and he worshiped. Why? Because his eyes had been opened. Jesus revealed to him who he was, what he had done, and that he is worthy of all worship. This man has a true belief. And Jesus is going to sum up the entire event in these next last few verses. Verse 39. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, we aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now you say, we see, your sin remains. So Jesus is, about, is talking about this difference between true rejection or true belief and rejection. The belief of the man is contrasted with the rejection of the religious leaders. When Jesus came, he came to save. He came to draw people to himself. But with that drawing of people to himself, there are those who aren't going to believe. There are those who will. There are those who won't. Jesus' judgment is this. He demands people to respond to him. You have to respond to Jesus. And either you respond in belief or you respond in rejection. The only way to respond to him in faith and worship is to have our spiritual eyes open. We have to be awakened by Jesus. When we are born, we are born blind into this world. These religious men thought that they knew the truth. They, they thought that they weren't blind, so they continued to find, follow their blind activities. And when Jesus revealed himself to them, they blinded themselves even further. But this man, born blind, now sees Jesus for who he is. Jesus came to take the spiritually blind and open their eyes so that they can have a relationship with him. So the question is, are you blind? Are you blind to the things of God? And if you are, he wants to open your eyes. He wants you to see. He wants you to experience his goodness and his grace. And if you aren't blind anymore, and Jesus has opened your eyes, He wants you to tell other people. Like this man, go and tell people about the fact that you were once blind and now you see. That God has changed you, that he has transformed you, and he has made you new. That is the calling. That your testimony matters. Your witness matters. That that you don't have to have a magnificent thing where God rubs mud on your eyes to have a good testimony. Your testimony is that you were once blind and now you see the goodness of God. That is your testimony. Tell others. Tell others about his goodness. Tell others about his grace. Tell others about the love that he has for you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you. Lord, if there's anybody in here whose eyes are blind, open them. Lord, if there's anybody in here who thinks they see and they don't truly see, Lord, humble them. Lord, help us to see you for who you truly are, that you are worthy of all worship, honor, and praise. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing some songs. Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com.